it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a special show. We found this uh, semi-bald guy on the internet by the name of Brian Feraldi. He is an educator, a financial educator. He's also an author, wrote this great new book we're going to talk about today, Twitter extraordinaire, YouTuber. He's kind of all over the place and smart guy, very energetic, and this is going to be a lot of fun. So Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And I have a very interesting question for you, kind of starting out of the gate. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Hi, Dave. Andrew, thanks so much for having me and for that riveting introduction that is spot on <laughs> with accuracy. What did I want to be when I was a kid? I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out, to be honest. I had no thoughts about that. I had some thoughts about that as a kid. Uh, the funny thing is, I vividly remember when I was a kid, I went to a like my elementary school dance with my mom, and we got to take a limo on the way there. And I remember my only desire as a kid was to make sure that I had a limo that drives me around when I got older uh, in life. And I also used to have a crazy thought like, you know, someday I want to own my own business so that I can work from my bedroom. Like that for some reason was a thing. But, but you know, this was like the 80s and 90s. And I was like, okay, well, that's impossible. So forget that to uh, so get that dream. So I didn't get the limo, but I did get the work from home thing. So I guess from that success. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, I wanted to be a center fielder for the San Francisco Giants when I was a kid. So, you know, hey, we all got dreams. They don't always get there, but it's fun to think about it. So how did you start in finance? Where did that, you know, the love of numbers, if you will, or stocks or whatever come from? So I think that I was just born naturally interested in money and saving. Uh, like some people are just born savers. I was just a, a natural saver. Whenever I made money, I just had some inclination to always set some of it aside for the future. That was just like built into my bones. However, I wasn't educated formally or really informally growing up about how money works, how investing works, the real details about personal finance. My parents were great teachers and that they did the right things, but it's not like they ever sat us down and said, here's how you think about money. Here's how you invest or, or anything like that. They themselves were good at making income, good at leaving below their means. So I learned that for them by uh, osmosis. Uh, however, what really turned kickstarted the love affair that I currently have with investing in the stock market uh, was after I graduated from college, I got my hands on my first book about money and that was Rich Dad, 
Poor Dad uh, by Robert Kiyosaki. My dad handed it to me after I graduated, and I just immediately took to that book. I mean, I devoured it, and I read that in a few days, and then I reread it. Uh, from there, I basically wrote I read every book that he wrote, and then that led me on to other books. I learned about Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. I learned about The Motley Fool. I learned about Seth Klarman. And after thinking through the various ways that you can invest, I gave some thought to real estate. I really learned quickly that's not for me. I gave my thought to owning a laundromat. Learned quickly that's not for me. <laughs> and then I settled on, you know, this whole stock market thing where I buy and I can sell from the, my house. I don't have to manage anything. The assets manage themselves. And if I can apply a long-term mindset to them and come up with some selection criteria, uh, that style of investing really appealed to me. Now, the job that I had out of school was I was lucky enough to, to join a, a startup medical device company. Uh, the company was pre-FDA approval running on venture capital funds, and this was back in 2004. Sheer luck on my part, that company is now worth more than $10 billion and uh, publicly traded. So I got in the ground floor, sheer luck company. But one thing that job did afford me to, I wasn't passionate about that job in per se, but I was in sales for them and I was in my car 30, 40 hours a week driving around. And I used all of that time to binge listen to podcasts and audio books and uh, listen to company conference calls and really learn everything that I could about money, uh, personal finance and investing. So I would say that kickstart my love affair was in 2004 from reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which by the way is a book I don't completely agree with everything that they say uh, now, but that was a gateway drug for kickstarting a love affair that I have with investing. That was a bit of a gateway drug for me too. Just the way he presented the idea of creating an income stream. Maybe can you touch on that for somebody if they happen to be tuning into a financial podcast for the first time, they stumbled on this one. What about income streams is so appealing and why should people pay attention? Yeah, that book was the first book that I ever read that introduced some very important concepts and principles about money and really life that are just timeless. Some of them that I learned was everybody is in business for themselves. Like that one really hit home for me. Like I always thought your whole career was find a job with a, a stable company, grow within the ranks there, work for them for 40 years. And, and that's what you do. When somebody said, no, you're actually in business for yourself. If you work for a company, then you just have one customer. And that customer is really your employer. And that concept is so simple, but it kind of like blew my mind. Uh, another one was the rich think about money differently than everybody else. The rich make money and they think, how can I use this to buy an asset? How can I use this to increase my wealth? How can I start a business with this or buy a piece of real estate or whatever? Uh, how can I take the money that I have and grow it? A lot of other people are just naturally trained to be, okay, I have this money. How can I best consume it? Like, what can I buy? Can I go on a vacation? Can I buy a nicer house, a nicer car, uh, whatever it is? So that was really important. The idea of that the rich use corporations and taxes differently and how tax law, like the very basics of, of tax law, the difference between an asset and a liability, building multiple income streams uh, for themselves. Those were the really core principles that I took away from that book and really have tried to embody in my life. Yeah, that's awesome. So question that kind of comes to my mind then, why do you think the financial education, especially among young people, is so lacking? That's a really hard question to answer. I can say that I was taught nothing about money or investing in elementary school, middle school, high school, for sure. And I was taught very little about investing while I was in college. And I say that as someone that graduated with a business degree. 
right? I mean, I remember a couple of times my professors offhandedly mentioned what like a dividend was in like the middle of a class. The class was on like healthcare management and it was talking about a dividend. I was like, that blows my mind. Companies pay you cash just for owning their stock. Like what? Can we explore more about this, this topic? No wonder why rich people like them. So that was like an accidental thing that happened in the class. But I was taught nothing about how a business works or the phases of a business or what the stock market is, why it goes up and down. So I don't have a good answer then to that other than to say, I don't think a lot of teachers themselves are really fluent in money and finance because they themselves were not taught the principles. I know that some of them do teach around the curriculum and do a great job of educating uh, people. But I just think that that's just a broadly speaking, a piece of education that is missing from the education system and missing from teacher education. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's, I mean, that's really why we're, I think we're all here is to try to help educate people and help people learn how finance works, how money works. I worked in the banking industry for a while and I literally had people come to me and say, what do you mean? I don't have money. I have checks. You know, those kinds of conversations actually do happen. And, you know, when you see it from a 35 or 40 year old person, it kind of shocks you a little bit. You know, it's a 16 year old kid. Okay, sure. Maybe I get it. But that's one of the things that I like about your book is that it's so approachable and it's easy to read and it kind of lays out all these great topics that I think people can learn a lot from. You know, especially, you know, as they're going to start learning to invest, there's so many topics. So I guess for you, what drove you to want to write the book? Yeah. So the, the title of it, I think, is uh, very illuminated. The title is Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? If you come across investing in any way, I think you are at least aware that there's something called the stock market. For some reason, there's these terms called the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ that the news always talks about, never explains what they mean, by the way, but always talks about them. And that if you come across investing, the odds are good that you've heard probably that the stock market goes up 10% per year. That's something that I heard for years and that the stock market is for some reason a good investment. Now I read, so I devoured books about investing when I first started. And so many of them are fantastic, right? Books by John Bogle, books by Charlie Munger, by Peter Lynch. And they all talk about how the stock market is a magical thing that tends that goes up over the long term. It's a great idea to dollar cost average into it. And if you do that consistently, in 10, 20, 30 years, you'll be rich. That sounds great. Why does that happen? What is the reason that the stock market goes up 10% per year? I never came across a book that explained that in just plain English uh, to me. Now, I'm a very curious person. Like I said, I was studying this intensely on my own in my free time. And over a course of a couple of years, I gradually learned the answer. And once I learned the answer, I was like, oh, this isn't hard. It's not hard to understand why the stock market goes up, but why isn't there just a book out there that explains that in like very simple, basic English? And I never thought that I was going to write a book. I actually was wondering myself once I learned that why a book like that didn't exist. I mean, there's thousands of great books about investing in the stock market, but I just wondered why isn't there a book that just explains the extreme basics, including answering the most important question that I had, which is why why does it go up? And after waiting for many, many years, a couple of my friends, Morgan Housel and Brian Stoffel said, maybe you're supposed to be the one that writes it. And I was like, I don't know how to write a book. Okay, I guess I'm going to try this. So I started about 18 months ago. 
and it just launched a month ago. But the person that I had in mind when I was writing it was someone that's either fresh out of college or just getting their first job, signing up for their 401k and being in the exact same position I was when I first did that. Like I remember getting the forms for my 401k from my HR person at that company I was talking about. And they're like, here you go, fill out this forms. And I was like, all right, what do I do? What do I choose? What do these terms mean? And I was looking for advice and the HR person literally couldn't give me advice. She wasn't allowed to. And I was like, okay, here I am. This seemed like an important decision. I literally don't know what these terms mean. And yet I here I am making an important decision about my life. I know that so many people are in that exact same position that I am was in. So I asked myself, what do I wish I could give myself in that moment? So that my book was designed to be given to that person in that time. They now know something they need to know about the stock market, but they just need to know the basics. That's what my book was designed to answer. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. So can you spill the beans? Why does it go up? <laughs> yes. It's a longer topic that we could probably cover here uh, quickly. But the thing that I never understood about the market and the thing that I think so many people don't understand about the market is there's a direct relationship between the price 
of the stock market and the profits of the businesses that are in in the stock market. That is something that is completely unobvious to us. The reason that that information is hidden is because what is the thing that that is the the easy information that is accessible all the time to everyone, even with a cursory glance at the stock market? Price. Everybody knows the price of the Dow, the S&P 500, what it did, how many points it went up today or yesterday. That information is instantly accessible to everybody all the time. You know what's hard to find? Corporate profits. How have the S&P 500's earnings fared over the last 1, 3, 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years? If you ask that question, 99% of people would, one, have no idea what you're talking about, and two, have no way of looking up that information. But once I discovered that there was a direct relationship, in the long term at least, between how businesses perform, the profits that those businesses produce, and the prices that their stock uh, trades at, that's when it all all suddenly made sense to him. So the goal of the book was to establish that link between price that you see in the market, which is apparent, and business profits, explain why corporate profits have risen every year, or not every year, but consistently over long periods of time for the last 150, 200 years, and lay out the case for why that should continue to happen moving forward. Uh, Once you understand that principle, I think you can just invest with a whole nother level of confidence because you finally understand how the market actually works. Yeah, totally. So I guess the next reveal, where can people go to find out this profit thing? Like what voodoo are you talking about here? Yeah, getting the information really isn't easy. There are some resources online for doing so. The gold standard for me is Robert Schiller's wonderful database uh, that he provides for free on his website. So you can just type in Robert Schiller S&P 500 uh, data. And even sites like CNBC, for example, does show this data on occasion, but it's not easy information to find. But my two sources are Robert Schiller, and then there's another great website called Yardini, Y-A-R-D-I-N-I.com, I believe. And if you type in S&P 500 earnings, you can find sources that have it. But so many people don't even know that that's a term that you should even search for. So finding that information is not easy. Maybe you can make it easy. If, if it was your job to write this book, maybe it's your job to make an easy to follow index, <laughs> yeah. a, a bald there investor index for S&P earnings or something. Yeah, maybe I'll start a newsletter and just say, uh, here, here's the earnings of the S&P 500 this quarter. See you in 90 days. <laughs> I think, you know, maybe the discussing the earnings and the prices, maybe we should talk a little bit about kind of what's going on in the market now. I mean, it's, you know, the last six months, well, I mean, the last two years has been nuts for everybody, but the market the last six months in particular, the last few months has just been kind of crazy. And, you know, Andrew and I talk a lot about this and the disconnect between the prices and what's actually going on with actual businesses that are being affected in the markets. You had this great video a few days ago about Snap and what happened to Snapchat and they didn't even report earnings and they got crushed. So any company that's reporting earnings right now is probably going, ah, you know, if they got to do it. So uh, what are your thoughts on kind of all the stuff that's going on? I've been investing for 18 years and I invested through 2008 and 2008 and 2009 was crazy, (laughs) right? I mean, I literally remember hearing news reports. I was listening to like NPR and they're like, the Dow fell 700 points today. I'm being like, oh my God, like is is capitalism (laughs) ending, right? And then the Fed came out and they poured all this money on the economy. And I was like, oh great, the United States is going bankrupt. And just how bleak the economic data uh, was uh, week after week, month after month, quarter after quarter. And then Warren Buffett came out and said, I'm buying 
America I am. And I think that was September of 2008. So he, Warren Buffett was six months early on coming to like the bottom of the market. And then magically in March of 2009, stock market bottomed and it just went straight up from there. Even though if you continued to read the news, the news was terrible. That the news kept on being absolutely terrible in March, April, May, June, like all the months after the market bottomed, the news continued to be awful. So when I think about what's happening today, it reminds me of the environment of late 2008. During that period, it didn't matter what any company said. Your stock was going down, period. Unless you were reporting perfectly and you had just an optimistic tone, uh, your stock was still going down. Uh, What we've seen over the last year, but really accelerated over the last six months, is that 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 extreme fear and pessimism has infected investors' minds, broadly speaking, not without reason, by the way. Investors are so fearful that their stock is going to fall tomorrow based on earnings that they try and sell now to get ahead of it. That's the Mm -hmm. mindset that the market is certainly in. And there's so much uncertainty. There's so much visible uncertainty out there. What's going to happen with interest rates? I don't know. Probably going up. What's going to happen with inflation? I don't know. Probably going to go up. What's happened with the war in Ukraine and Russia? I don't know. Is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? I don't know. What's going to happen with supply chains? I don't know. What's going to happen with COVID? I don't know, right? There's so many things that we know about that are uncertain out there. It makes sense why the markets are behaving uh, the way they are. It makes sense why investors are fearful. What investors don't often realize is that the world was very, very uncertain and fearful on September 10th. 2011, the day before September 11th, the world was uncertain. It's just that we didn't have those uncertainties so visible to us. And that's a point, by the way, that was I stole from Warren Buffett, right? So the world is always uncertain. I think that when investors realize or have visibility into the uncertainty that they're facing, that's when they become filled with fear, especially when the recent market history is down. That's when your mind starts playing massive tricks on yourself. And this is why investing is hard and challenging. You have to deal with these downturns in real time. Every downturn that we see when we look at the long-term history looks like a great buying opportunity. Living through it minute by minute is a completely different experience. (laughs) Oh, yeah. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Do you have any tips for somebody, maybe particularly if they're new and they just jumped into the market? We've had some questions like this where people have just started investing in the market and they're like, my portfolio is down. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> what are some practical tips that people can get past that and continue to have faith, even though they've been beaten around the past couple months? Mm-hmm. So let me just say, when I first started investing, I had no idea what I was doing. No idea at all. And I made bad investments left and right. It felt awful. Awful. It's It feels so awful to save money, to put it into the market, to think you're doing a smart thing. And then the immediate reaction you get is, well, you lost it, right? You're down on it. That is something that is just painful for so many investors to go through. However, I can say that those early losses that I took looking back was like the best tuition that I ever paid because it, it helped to develop the mindset about investing that I now have. If you are investing, uh, first, just ask yourself, what are you investing for? What is the reason you're putting money 
into the stock market. Is it to get rich tomorrow so you can buy a house? That's not the place. That's not That money should not be in the stock market. So first, by really stepping back and saying, what is the purpose of this capital? If the purpose of this capital is to fund a retirement 20, 30, 40 years from now, you should be rooting for lower prices. You should be rooting for the market to continue going down. That's a really hard thing to accept when the feedback that you're getting is, this is dumb, this is dumb, I'm losing money. Uh, But that is the reality. That is what you should be rooting for if you have that mindset for retirement. If you were investing because you wanted fill-in-the-blank stock or fill-in-the-blank index to go up 50% to fund purchase of a house or the purchase of a car or to pay off debt, that is gambling. And that is not the mindset that you should bring into stock market. My favorite statistic on the S&P 500 that I've ever discovered is the odds of you having a positive real return, meaning at beating inflation return over various holding periods. If you buy and sell the S&P 500 and hold it for a day, your odds of making money are like 51%. It's literally a coin flip. If you buy and hold the S&P 500 for 20 years, your odds of making money are 100%. The S&P 500 has gone up in real terms after accounting for inflation 100% of the time over 20-year periods. So when I learned that, I was like, the stock market actually isn't risky. What's risky is holding stocks for shorter than their intended time period. Mm -hmm. And that's an easy thing to say. It's an easy thing to say, oh, I have a multi-year time horizon. But when you're putting money in the market and you see that the price that you quoted go down, 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 it's an entirely different thing to actually uh, live through. So my advice for people that are listening, going through this for the first time, is to take the time to write down on a piece of paper Why are you investing? What is your time horizon? What kind of volatility are you willing to endure along the way? That's hard to actually know until you actually endure uh, volatility. But if you're investing for retirement today and you have many, many decades ahead, this is a wonderful environment for you. It is. It has most of the money that's made in the market is made during these periods when there's downturns because you can buy a fantastic company insert name here and you know hold it for 20 years and you get it at a cheaper price which when like you're saying when it goes up 100% maybe not 100% but if it goes up you know over 20 years you know you just win that's it the tricky thing you just said there is great company i am a big fan i love individual stock investing myself. The bulk of my net worth is in individual stocks. However, stock market declines hit different companies differently. Some companies, when their stocks go down, they become much better buys. Other companies, when their stocks go down, they become riskier and riskier and riskier. And that is a principle that you have to know and understand why that is if you're going to invest in individual stocks. I think the indices, the S&P 500, the Dow, even the NASDAQ, when those go down, they become more compelling, more compelling, more compelling every time. When an individual company, when that happens to an individual company, it's always company specific, whether it's a good thing or it could potentially be a danger thing. So how do you differentiate between the two, You know, especially if you're starting out because I'm also an individual stock picker myself and I've had to learn the hard way about that difference between a stock going down being a good discount and the stock going down being a falling knife? The answer there is there's always nuance and it's always company specific that you have to know the details to. But broadly speaking, I think it's helpful to group companies into three 
broad, broad buckets. Bucket one is companies that are in the returning capital to shareholders phase. So this is big established profit gushing companies that have buybacks, they're paying down debt, they're paying out dividends. Those companies are typically strong, stable, have huge cash flows. And when their stock price goes down, that's actually a good thing because the company can repurchase its stock for investors at better and better prices. The second group I would call self-funders. These are companies that aren't returning capital to shareholders, but are completely financially stable. Maybe they're on the verge of getting to profitability. Maybe they're close to that. Maybe they're currently optimizing themselves for, for profitability, but they have no need for outside capital in order to execute their game plan. For them, a stock market decline could be a great thing or it could be bad depending on what's happening in the markets and to their customers. The final group of companies would be capital raisers. These are companies that are actively in search of capital from selling stock or raising debt. When those companies' stocks go down, that's a big problem because they suddenly, one method of raising capital for them is now not off the table, but it would be so dilutive for them to raise capital with a lower stock price that it, that, that it basically ruins the investing thesis. So If you think through those three categories, if a company is in the capital raising phase, right now is awful. This is terrible, terrible news for those companies. If it's a big company like Apple, Microsoft, Home Depot, and they're buying back their stock, what's happening with the stock prices is great news. So that's one mental model you're going to have to think through. Ask yourself, if a stock is falling, is is it a capital raiser? You better have confidence that that company is going to get through it. If it's a capital returner, you should be rooting uh, for lower prices. So that's just one way of discussing is a lower stock price good or bad. You just bottled up an MBA, you know, yeah. so much of an MBA for people. I haven't heard it explained that, that simply. Way. It was it was a really great explanation. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is a time to buy capital raisers? Is it something you do or advocate? Oh, yes. I own several myself. Again, a capital raiser by and large is a company that's coming public. It's come public because it needs capital and it has typically a very high growth trajectory. But in order to fund that growth, it's going to be spending aggressively on sales and marketing, on research and development, on overhead in order to build the infrastructure, in order to take advantage of the opportunity that it sees ahead. For that reason, it's going to be reporting losses on the bottom line, sometimes for many, many years, years. In that case, if I'm going to be an investor in that company, I typically want to see a glide path that's realistic for that company reaching profitability within the next, say, one, two, or three years. Or I have to have some huge faith that whatever special sauce the company has developed can grow so rapidly that the market will reward it with a higher price. However, I know going in that the odds are stacked against me of that investment being uh, successful. For that reason, I severely limit my allocation to those companies and keep them a small part of my portfolio. Conversely, if I find a company, if I was going to invest in like Apple today, like I would have no fear about buying the stock and rooting for it to continue going lower because while the returns might not be great moving forward, if, for example, the company's growth rate slows or goes negative, the odds of that of Apple going bust are zero. They're zero, right? right? The company has so much cash. It has so many customers around the world. It has so much optionality. It's returning capital like crazy to shareholders. So I would allocate more capital to an Apple than I would to a 
small money losing the company. So there's a part in your portfolio for both, so long as you understand the risks and you allocate appropriately. And I did not pay you to say that because subscribers are going to find out um, <laughs> when I release the June issue that, that there's a little spoiler alert for you there. I think that's really great advice. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here and ask maybe just to give like a tangible example. I think a lot of people use Uber. So would you consider Uber kind of one of those capital raisers? And do you have an opinion on them? And if, if you don't have an opinion on them, do you have another example of a capital raiser that we can kind of talk about to tell how that differentiates from someone like an Apple? Yeah, I think Uber is a great uh, example. Since Uber came public, their plan was lose money rapidly in order to grow their user base, to get their app more popular, to sign up more drivers, to expand to new geographies, to roll out new services like Uber Eats to get into freight. That is the thesis for that for Uber. And I haven't checked Uber's stock price at all actually recently. I assume it hasn't done well, especially in this environment. But uh, when I first looked at Uber as an investment, for me, it was pass for a few reasons. First off, I knew that they were going to be in the capital raising mode for many, many years. And if I'm going to take on the risk of investing in a company that I know is going to lose money for a long time, I want the potential reward to be massive, right? I want to be able to earn five, 10x returns. I don't know the number, but when Uber came public, I'm pretty sure it was like $50 billion company. It was maybe really high. 80 yeah, was really or something high. like that. So if I'm going to buy at that IPO, I have to believe that Uber could be a $50 billion company. I mean, excuse me, $500 billion company yeah. someday for me to earn a 10x return. How realistic is that? Boy, there are very, very few companies that are worth $500 billion. So that was thing one. Thing two, and I think is the harder thing for people to wrap their heads around, is the existential threat to Uber that self-driving cars represent. So I'm an investor in Tesla and say what you will about Elon Musk and Elon Musk's timelines. I think it's inevitable that self-driving cars are here. Once self-driving cars are here, why do we need Uber? That to me is a massive, relatively near-term existential threat to Uber's business. So given those, given the size, given the money losing, and given that existential threat, Uber for me has been a, is a pass nearly forever. And it's okay. If, I hope Uber turns out to be a great investment. Uh, it's just not for me. I would rather focus on companies that I have more conviction in that I don't see an existential threat are that are smaller and are closer to profitability. So let's say somebody's listening to this like three years in the future, Ubers happen to drop like 90% or something ridiculous. I obviously don't have a crystal ball. I'm just trying to make up a, a scenario here. But let's say that hurdle is kind of passed where it's been so beaten up that maybe it can easily 10x from wherever it's at. And then let's say they've actually proven a way to become an important part of the auto, you know, the automated driving ecosystem, would that change that idea or maybe cause you to take another look? Yeah, sure. The business is dynamic, right? Businesses, mm -hmm. the quality of businesses change rapidly, rapidly over time. If Uber stock was down 90%, let's say it was worth $10 billion or something along those lines. If the company was at profitability, if its balance sheet was in great shape, and let's say it proved out that self-driving cars were actually an opportunity for it and not a threat. Would I change my mind? Sure. I'd be willing to change my mind at that point. This is why there's no shame in taking a look at a company and passing on it with your first glance and then just putting it on your watch list and potentially investing in it uh, later. Businesses change. And the great thing is great companies actually become less risky over time. When Tesla first came public, holy cow, 
was at risky. I mean, you needed everything to go right for that company to work out. Tesla today is nearly debt-free, has almost $20 billion in cash, is free cash flow positive, has gigafactories galore coming online, has new models going, and its brand name has been become synonymous with quality. It also has a completely different business model than many of its direct competitors. Investing in Tesla today is so much less risky than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Still risky, by the way, but less risky uh, than it was. Yeah, a good example of that. I, I didn't read this book, but I heard about it in Elon Musk's autobiography. He talks about he he talked to the autobiographer about how close to the edge Tesla got to completely failing. Like it was a matter of if this deal didn't go through. To your point about capital raising, if they weren't able to raise that capital, Tesla probably would have gone bankrupt. And so you had a, a scenario where it was like. Either this investment was worth nothing or it was worth this crazy amount that it's worth today. Yep, it's that's right. it's, it's tough to navigate when you talk about companies like that. Yeah. And what's cool is I saw this firsthand in, in 2008. <laughs> the company I was working for, that medical device company that's now worth, I don't know, $10, 12000000000 billion, something like that. Uh, we were in the capital raising phase all the way up until 2018. Like, so the company was founded in 2000. It was in the capital raising phase literally for 18 years. And that included throughout 2008 and 2009. Wow. Uh, when I was working there, we went public. I remember this very vividly. We went public in 2006 and at $15 per share. Within six months, our stock was at 27. Okay. So we wow. 90% wow. gained from the IPO for pretty much no reason, by the way. No reason. It just went up that much, right? We, we were a better company, but we weren't 90% better. Then came 2008, and our stock fell from 27 to under three. Oof. Oh. 90 something percent loss. And this was when, during that time, capital markets were closed. There was no way to raise debt. There was no good equity options. So the company actually had to go through layoffs uh, during that period in order to basically survive with the cash that it had. Now, gradually, the equity markets opened back up and they were able to raise capital once the stock price recovered and they were on to take on some con convertible debt. So they got through it. And if you bought any time from 12 to 27 to three, you've got a multi-bagger on your hand. But I can tell you when you are living through that and your stock and your stock option, the companies fall 90%, oof, that was tough. That would be tough. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's times like those that you wonder how do people stay in the market? So how can we help people stay in the market? Yeah, that's a tricky thing. I would say there's several things you can do. First is to financially prepare yourself for what you're going to have to deal with if you're going to invest in the market. It's so easy to look at past volatility and say, I'll invest through that. It's an entirely different thing when you're living through it and you're dealing with the news and you're dealing with the psychology of other investors at the time to saying, I'll stick with this. So first is to financially prepare yourself. I'm a huge fan of optimizing your personal balance sheet first before you make any investments in the market. For me, that means multiple sources of income, high savings rate, zero debt, zero debt of any kind, six-month emergency fund. If you can do that, which isn't easy, that's not easy, but if you can do that, man, does it make dealing with volatility a lot easier. So that's thing one, is to make sure your personal finances are rock solid. Two, study market history. If you study market history or individual stock history, you'll, you'll realize that huge market downturns are normal. 
Like that is how markets function. The S&P 500, I think dropped 66%, peaked the trough from 2007 to 2009. The NASDAQ dropped like 70 or 80% from 2000 to 2002. There was a huge drops in 1987, 80 to 82, 73 to 74. Like if you look back at history, it's normal <laughs> for markets to go haywire every now and again. So get your personal finances order, study market history, and then know what you own and what your thesis is for owning it. I think if you can do those three things, it doesn't make dealing with markets downturns easy. It makes it easier. So what are your thoughts on people checking their portfolio daily, hourly, <laughs> You know, having the tickers scroll across the screen all day long? What are your thoughts on that kind of idea? First off, I understand it. When I first started investing, I investing in air quotes, by the way, when right. I first started being aware and having money in the stock market, I guess I should qualify. I check stock prices all the time. If I had a smartphone with me at the time, I would have been glued to that thing, seeing how much I lost or how much I made that day. Here's an unfortunate truth. Checking stock prices doesn't count as investing research, <laughs> right? What you are, what stock price movements measure on any given day is volatility and it measures randomness. In fact, when people in my real life come up to me, um, and they're like, hey, Brian, what happened to the market today? I'm like, I don't know. And that confuses so many people because <laughs> yeah. they're like, wait a second. I, I thought you were into investing. I pay attention to the market when something huge is going on. Like, if, like when the NASDAQ falls 3%, 2%, I'm aware of that. When the NASDAQ or market is up half a percent or down half a percent, that's like a nothing burger to me. I, I don't even pay attention to my portfolio that often. Uh, the reason is because I'm an actual investor. I buy companies that I think can substantially grow their revenue margins and profits over a one, three, five, 10 year uh, timeline. The only way that you can judge whether or not those companies are doing that is to look at their earnings reports. Those come out every 90 days right? Occasionally there's news within there, within that period, that's thesis altering. It could be good news or bad news. But whenever I own a stock and I see that that stock is down huge, so many of them are uh, right now. The first thing I do is I go back to the most recent earnings report and I say, what happened? Oh, revenue was up. Margins were up. They're closer to profitability or they produce cash flow. Thesis on track. See you in 90 days. Like it's the mindset that I have with those. And I, I really think that owning companies uh, for long periods of time will teach you a couple of things. One, that you're wrong a lot. I'm, I'm wrong at least half the time. Never feels good to be wrong, but that's the nature of, of investing. And two, that it's normal for even the greatest companies, the greatest investments out there to have periods where their stocks just get whacked just like absolutely smacked. Berkshire Hathaway, does it get any bigger, boring, stabler than Berkshire <laughs> Hathaway? That that stock's fallen 50%, I think five times yeah. in Buffett's, Buffett's tenure. So that if you can't handle that, you shouldn't be in the market. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's, that's really great advice. And I think it's something that is easy for us to forget until we live through it. And so if you can internalize these lessons beforehand, Sure does help a lot. I mean, what's that quote go? You have a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Yeah, everyone has a plan. Tyson. Yeah. yeah. Everyone like has that. a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. Which is one, one of the greatest investing quotes of all time, for sure. <laughs> there you go. Which is why people should buy your book because when they do get punched in the face, they will have the basics and the fundamentals internalized. I'm big on preparing yourself, equipping yourself while times are good to prepare yourself for when you get punched in the face. 
you're still gonna get punched in the face but at least you can try to make a reaction in this case a lot of people might be getting punched in the face now so that's even more motivation and reason to put the app down rather than you know to pick up a book rather than pick up your app i guess any parting words for the audience about the book anything you feel like we didn't cover anything in that regard one quick analogy i think is helpful here i myself am a nervous flyer I'm just not good on planes. I actually look to my kids when I'm on planes with them to be like, I'm going to be okay, right? What has helped me deal with flying is first off studying just the statistics. I know logically planes are the safest form of transportation. It's not even close how safe they are. And once you learn that and internalize that, it helps. Two, something that's really helped me is to study actually how planes work. Why do planes go up in the sky. Like it's like magic from the outside, right? But once you understand Newton's laws, Bernoulli's principle, the airfoil, and that helped me again, logically understand. And then finally, I've been on planes. One of my favorite planes brands to fly is United. And this has been historically, not because United is like magic or anything like that. They're an ordinary brand. But one thing that I liked is that they let you, they were the one airline where you could actually plug your headphones in and you could listen to the pilots talking to each <laughs> really? other and like oh, whatever vol- cool. whatever the, the plane started going i would tune to that channel and they would be like yeah there's some light chop here we're going to take it to thirty-five thousand feet to get out of this i was like yes they understand that this sucks <laughs> and i want this plane to be smooth again but understand so for me understanding the logic of how planes work helps to calm my fears whenever we're going through turbulence, which again, to pilots is no big deal. Like that's normal. To me, the passenger, I hate turbulence so much, but that really helps me that I logically understood it. The goal for my book was the exact same thing. Teach people the principles that keep the stock market in the air so that when turbulence comes, you can understand the reason the stock market was in the the stock market went up in, in the first place. So applying, helping the logical part of your brain at least fight back against the emotional part of your brain. Yeah, that's an awesome analogy. And I think that makes a lot of sense. My fiance is terrified of flying for the exact same reason you are. I'm going to actually tell her those stories. So maybe that'll <laughs> help her get over some of that fear. We really, really, really enjoyed the conversation today. This has been a lot of fun. And I know that our listeners are going to get a lot of good learning out of this. So if people want to learn more about what you got going on and you got a lot of things going on, where can they find more about Brian? The the easiest place to connect with me is on Twitter. I'm at Brian Feraldi. If individual stock investing interests you at all, uh, my YouTube channel, we kind of, uh, me and my partner, Brian Stoffel, break down how we think about and analyze individual uh, businesses. So those are the two places to connect with me. Okay. As a fr- frequent flyer of both of those, uh, no pun intended, frequent flyer of both of those resources, they are, they're great. Uh, check them out. There's a lot of great education there and a lot of great learning and it's some fun too. So, uh, Brian, thank you again very much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate you taking time to come talk to us today. And everyone out there, uh, go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional.
Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.